Tonight's video is brought to you by Universal Yums. If you're looking for a way to spice up a date night or maybe just have some fun with the kids, you should definitely be ordering a box from Universal Yums. They will send you treats from a random country in the world stacked to the brim with chocolate, savory items, fruity gummies, all of this sort. You will never be disappointed with Universal Yums. It's a fun thing to do with your kids, and like I said, if you just want to share it with your significant other, that's a really, really fun date night idea as well. Maybe cook a dinner from the country that the box is based on. Who knows? You could also just order one for yourself. I am guilty of hoarding the box from my partner, so I won't hold it against you. If it sounds like something you're interested in or something you just want to try, head down to the link in the top of the description and check out Universal Yums. You will not regret it. Now, let's get into tonight's video. Something inhuman crash-landed in Ireland during my childhood by Sugar South. My father shook me awake. I was still half asleep as he told me to get dressed quickly. I was still very groggy and couldn't comprehend what was going on, but quickly threw on some clothes. He was waiting for me outside, and I climbed into the car alongside him. He quickly explained that there had been a plane crash nearby, and we were going to go see it. I could hear the excitement in his voice as we drove along. For some reason, all I felt was a cold, uncertain dread. We pulled up behind a number of other cars, and I recognized a number of my neighbors as I moved toward the burning wreckage in the distance. My father was chatting away to everyone as I followed in his wake. I waved at a few of my friends who were still wearing their pajamas, as their parents obviously hadn't given them time to get dressed. We were using the moonlit sky to guide us, as most people didn't have any flashlights with them. I walked into the back of my father's legs as he stopped suddenly. I moved around him before freezing in place as the heat from the flames scorched the few hairs on my face. The plane lay scattered across the field in front of me. It was a small one-seater with a military insignia covering it. My eyes were drawn to the cockpit as I could see the blackened corpse of the pilot sitting inside. I let out a shriek and backed away as the pilot turned its head and faced me. I tripped over something and collapsed to the wet grass with my gaze still fixed on the pilot. I was roughly pulled to my feet and looked up into the face of my father. His eyes had rolled up into the back of his skull, leaving only the whites visible. My gaze darted around to see all my other neighbors were the same. I grabbed onto my father and began shaking him, but he stood there, unmoving. I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye and froze in place as the pilot climbed out of the cockpit. His motions were erratic, as if he weren't used to walking. I let out a whimper as his head turned from side to side as if he was looking for something. His body had been burned so badly that I couldn't even distinguish any of his features. His head suddenly stopped moving, and I knew that he was somehow watching me. He opened his mouth, and a fountain of orange liquid poured out. 
I dived out of the way as the liquid missed me by mere inches. The ground where it landed began to sizzle and turn black. The pilot lurched forward as I crawled between the legs of my neighbors in a desperate bid to escape. I heard the sounds of pursuit behind me as he threw people out of his way in order to catch me. I let out a scream of pain as a burning sensation tore through my left foot. I looked down to see the orange liquid on my runners. I kicked off the runners moments before it disintegrated. I struggled to my feet and tried to run, but my left foot was in agony and I couldn't put any weight on it. I felt my bladder release as a hand landed on my shoulder and twisted my body around. I now stood facing the pilot as he towered over me. I don't know what came over me, but I instinctively punched him in the groin. The pilot began emitting a noise that made me want to tear my own ears off. It took me a few seconds to realize he was laughing at me. He reached down with both his hands and held me in place as he opened his mouth to spray me with that liquid. I closed my eyes and prepared to accept my fate. I reopened them after almost a minute when nothing happened. The pilot's grip on me had faltered and his head was now looking toward the east. The sun was starting to rise in the horizon and the pilot flinched away as the first tendrils of sunlight reached us. He began backing away and using its hands to try and protect it. I noticed that its body was beginning to break apart wherever the sunlight hit. I rushed forward and stuck out my leg to trip it and watched in delight as it slumped to the floor. It shot its arm and grabbed mine, and I let a squeal as I felt something snap in my arm. The grip on my arm released as the pilot attempted to push himself from the floor. I stepped back as the pilot's body began falling apart. Within a minute, there was nothing left of it but a small, smoldering pile of ash. I cradled my broken arm as my father appeared at my side. I could see the evident confusion on his face as I couldn't remember anything that had happened since we got there. I took one last look at the remains of the plane before my father guided me toward our car so he could bring me to a hospital. The Man with the Invisible Knife by Brandon Fairclaw it was hard not to notice when he entered the subway car. He wore a long, sharply tailored blue coat with a green paisley vest and crisp white shirt. This was all accentuated with a wide blue silk tie and a felt derby to match. Every bit of it, so perfect, I felt my brain shudder at the incongruity of the man sitting down in this dirty train car. He just stared at the woman across at first, both of them silent. Then his face began to twitch while his eyes remained locked on hers. It was then that I realized he was raising his left hand to just under her shoulder. The hand looked empty, but his fingers were curled as though he was holding something tightly. Leaning, he brought this emptiness forward, moving his hand close to the woman's face before pulling back with a smile and moving on. He did the exact same thing eight more times with all the other passengers before reaching me, and when he sat down, I was resolved to avoid his gaze. 
insanity or a prank. Either way, I wanted nothing to do with it. But I felt the weight of his gaze upon me, and I was afraid. When I looked up, I could hear the whispers immediately. A voice in my head, soft and mellifluous, said my name. Not the name my parents gave me or what friends call me. Nothing as simple or base as that. No. My true name. I hadn't known I had such a name until he whispered it in the forgotten hallways of my heart. And when he did, it lit me up. Woke me up in such a terrible and wonderful way. I felt tears wanting to form in the corners of my eyes and I fought them back. Staring in gratitude, I didn't flinch as he brought the tip of the knife up to my face. I couldn't see the knife, of course, but he told me it was there, so I knew it was. And if I had doubt, the pinprick pressure of it briefly kissing my forehead killed that quickly enough. Lost in wonder, I sighed sadly when he stood and walked away with a final whisper. Aradath. That was when he began using his knife in earnest. He slashed with the absence he held and blood sprayed from the first woman and then the old couple and then the children playing checkers and on and on. No one screamed, I don't think. And I just closed my eyes and waited for my... Drop the knife! I looked around confusedly. I was standing... Instead of sitting, my arms and chest were slick and stinking with dark wetness. What knife? I don't have the... But it was there. Hard and long like a sixth finger. I couldn't see it before. But now that I knew my true name, I could see so much falling my knees I began to weep The Lonely Translator by Manon Lysette Chatter turns to static as the recording comes to an end My hand shakily hovers over the replay button but I can't bring myself to push it yet, to confirm whether the translation I did in my head is correct. I was never supposed to hear what the strangers in the stars were telling one another, only what they wanted me to relay to Earth, and vice versa. But I was lonely. And the situation gets so quiet in the weeks it can take between messages. Even though I knew what I was getting into when I agreed to this mission, I could never have imagined the solitude that comes when being the only soul in a sea of stars on a tiny relay station between them and us with only the bare minimum to keep a mind stimulated. That's why I intercepted their transmission. 
It wasn't on purpose. I was scanning all channels, skimming through frequencies in the hopes of capturing a signal from Earth. I wanted to hear a human voice again, wishing for a long-lost television transmission or something that might have been wafting through space for centuries. I would have taken anything, even an old weather report. And then somehow I stumbled on their ship-to-ship exchanges. I knew I wasn't supposed to find it, let alone here. If I had been listening with ears alone, I never would have had known there was more to the silence, but I could see something on the display that hinted at communication at a frequency outside my range of hearing. I recorded it out of curiosity and tinkered with my settings until it became audible to me. I have spent so many years immersed in the stranger's language. I knew right away what they were saying without needing to refer to the guidebook. That's how I found out their promises of peace were a lie. That they're coming for our resources and that they'll arrive a decade earlier than we'd expected. That's why as I sit here at my console, I can't bring myself to hit the replay button. The moment I double-check and confirm what I fear, I'll have no choice but to send a message to Earth. It'll say, raise the energy shields. If they work, and I hope they do, I'll essentially be cutting myself off from everything I hold dear. There will be no transmissions and no going back. I will die here, either from the solitude or as retribution from the fast-approaching strangers. I know I will never be ready, so I hit the replay button and close my eyes. It's what I feared. I heard what I thought I heard. They're coming to take everything. And they'll be here soon. I'll send the warning to Earth in the morning. Hopefully it reaches them in time. Hopefully the energy shield works and will deflect the enemy armada. The technology is still untested, so it could go either way. As for this lonely translator, if I survive, if the strangers don't bother destroying my relay station, I'll never know whether the silence from Earth means success or destruction. Babel by Brandon Faircloth. I was in the grocery store when I heard the man babbling one aisle over. Goldfish lamping the chase downtown. It was strange, but maybe I hadn't really listened closely enough, and the man's voice had been low and ruminating as though he was 
talking to himself more than anyone else. Most likely, I just missed what he was really saying, and my brain had turned it into something odd. Pushing my buggy to the end of the aisle, I smiled at the older woman, set up at a small table with a platter of little sausages, speared with colorful toothpicks. Returning my smile, she gestured to the tray before her. Hey there, sir. Want to try a little smoky? No thanks. (laughs) They do look good, though. It was a polite lie at best. They looked cold and weird in the fluorescent light of the store to say nothing about the layers of germs their barbecue glaze had likely acquired in the several hours this poor woman had to sit here hawking her wares. Moving on, I glanced down the next aisle as I passed. There was the fish man, staring bleakly at rows of cereal boxes, his hands milling endlessly as he shuffled back and forth down the aisle. Something didn't seem right. He wasn't just comparison shopping. He was upset. My first thought between how he was acting and what I'd possibly heard was some mental issue, but he looked healthy and well-dressed and maybe, what, 40 at most? I jumped slightly when he turned to look at me, his slack mouth tightening into a sad O before he spoke. Diesel? The fan-maid runs Diesel? His eyebrows knitted together in frustration when I just stared at him. Runs Diesel. Fear and unease curdled together in my belly as I gave him an awkward smile and walked on by. I was two aisles over, looking at Juice, when I heard a woman yelling. Sir, I'm trying to help you, but I need you to... (sighs) And then, in a lower, shocked voice, he spoke. Bit on me. Gripping my cart tight, I went to the back of the store again. There was the little smoky woman scrubbing at her face while a teenaged boy awkwardly told the fish man he needed to leave. Little Smokey was already shaking her head. No, we need to call 911. He spit on me and he's granite. Move pumpkin in time. Sorry. The boy turned to stare at her. Gladys, are you okay? She frowned at him. Angel forth. She pointed at the fish man. Eagle jumped granite luck. Skin growing cold, I left my buggy and started walking out of the store, even as more people were running to the back. Once outside, I looked at the people in the parking lot. Some of them seemed strange. Everything was strange. At least I was out of there. I just needed to forage stars by Nestle Green Storms. Five forage stars. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Smith Grave Monument by Manon Lysette. Well, 
Mehmeda knocked on the door with a dry, calloused hand. An older woman with sunken eyes opened and led her into the foyer where the rest of the family waited. The house was cold in a way that went beyond temperature. Every face solemn, each glance stolen. There were at least ten family members, if her count was correct, cramped in the small space, and yet not even one of them dared to sit on the armchair by the fireplace. The one belonging to the late Anthony Smith. He was a good man, Willamina offered flatly. There were a few nods of approval, but mostly silence reigned. The old matriarch wrung her hand so tight, if her skin hadn't already been so pale, it would have just turned white. She asked the question weighing on all their minds. Can you do it? Willamina had been asking herself that very same question on the walk over. Now, in front of their desperate expressions, it was harder not to be swayed one way or another. I can, she thought. But I shouldn't. Last time had gone so poorly, though, she'd been assured the fault didn't lie with her. The family had kept a secret from her. Yes, she said reluctantly. She immediately scanned the room to gauge the family's reaction, but it was so oddly varied, she wasn't sure what to make of it. Some showed relief, others a hint of silent distress. Regret crept into her like a mouse in a burrow, making its home in her stomach. She could feel its whiskers tickling the undersides of her skin, but to question the family was to question their integrity, their very honor. And in her position, it just wasn't done. With a final worried glance around the room, Willanima took a step toward the door. I'll be back with the monument in a week's time. If you have any... She paused, choosing her words carefully. Concerns. Please make them known before the ceremony. Their eyes followed her like portraits on the wall as she left the house. She tried her best to swallow the apprehension. By all accounts, he'd been a good man. There was no reason things would go wrong this time. Lamina found solace in her craft. She picked a slab of marble for the purity of its color and the uniqueness of the pattern of gray rivers weaving through it as though part of a foreign landscape. She etched Anthony's grave monument with extreme care, at times deviating from her original design where she felt the added flair would serve it well, or where the pattern called for it. Every line she carved in an upward motion with the hopes of helping his soul along its journey. As she worked, the sounds of screams haunted her memories. Guilt clung to her like marble dust, and even though she'd been assured there was nothing she could have done differently, the words ring hollow whenever she thought of the children, now left without a family. What if she'd made a mistake? What if her monument had been faulty? What if they'd been innocent the whole time? What if she wasn't as skilled as she thought she was? 
She gasped as she came just short of nicking the edge of one of the grooves. The repercussions of such an imperfection could have had catastrophic consequences. Hands shaking, she had no choice but to call it an early night and hope her head would be clear by morning. The next day, she punished herself by slowing her pace to a snail's crawl. Some could call it taking the proper precautions, but such restrictions are the death of art. The carving became less natural as a result, precise in a way that left no room to breathe, stripping the piece of its original organic flow. Pressure was growing, but Wilhelmina did her best to keep her worries at bay. Eventually, she regained enough confidence to return to a more natural pace. As promised, in a week, Wilhelmina delivered the most beautiful, ornate grave monument the Smith family had ever seen. It would be the jewel of the cemetery. It was so large, it took a hoisting system and three men to carry it to the family plot and gently lower it at the head of Anthony Smith's grave. There it seemed to shine in the sunlight, a beacon of hope, a pillar to heaven itself. It was a thing of beauty, but it was missing one final piece. That night, the Smith family gathered with Wilhelmina holding a polished garnet the size of a fist, meant for a hole carved at the very top of the tombstone. The conditions for success were strict, and Wilhelmina waited until the moonlight finally peeked through the clouds before she climbed the ladder and glanced one final time at the group, hoping for objections but hearing none. Today we laid to rest Anthony Smith. Once I place this garnet on the pedestal, the door to the afterlife will open, carrying his soul to heaven. If anyone has reason to believe he will not be accepted, speak now or forever hold your peace. She thought she saw movement from one of them, a flinch perhaps. But in the darkness, with nothing but candlelight around them, but in the darkness, with nothing but candlelight around the plot, she couldn't be sure. She let the paws hang in the air too long for comfort. Still, there was nothing. Nothing audible, at least. Very well. Then I shall proceed. Lamina closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and slipped the garnet into its groove. Though this was the first time it had been integrated into the piece, it fit like Cinderella's shoe. Once it clicked into place, the tombstone began to vibrate. From the crowd, she heard a single, Wait! But by then, it was already too late. The vibrations increased in speed and ferocity, generating an unsettling humming noise as air passed through the carved grooves. An unnatural heat radiated off the stone. Willamina hoped it was only caused by the friction, not a taste of the fires that might come. Either way, she braced herself and remained on the ladder behind the monument, where she hoped she would be safe. 
Moments later, screams cut through the silence of the night. The first came from a shrill voice belonging to the old matriarch as her skin caught ablaze. The intensity shifted low, high, low, high in an almost rhythmic way like an ambulance siren. The family members near her staggered back in shock. Not even one lifted a hand to help her, though there wasn't anything they could have done, even if they tried. Her eyes rolled to the back of her skull, and she fell forward, leaving behind a dusty afterimage that was still screaming, albeit silently now. It was then that charred hand stretched out from the now burning red garnet, reaching for that afterimage for her very soul. The gnarled fingers wrapped themselves around her throat and yanked her ethereal form straight off the ground and into the orb. She tried to pull herself out, but in the end, she succumbed to her fate. Lamina held the ladder in a vice-like grip. It was happening. Again. Just like last time. Just like with the Bramford family. Was this her fault? Had she made a mistake? She'd checked her work a hundred times over for imperfections, but there hadn't been any, had there? A circle of fire surrounded the group, cutting them off from the outside world. The flames were high and hot. Those who tried to jump them would find themselves incinerated at supernatural speed. And while that might have seemed like a blessing compared to the slower deaths of the other family members, their souls would be left to burn in the flames until the others were dealt with. One of the younger smiths, Willamina hadn't caught his name, but he must have been in his early twenties, called out to her. Make it stop! Make it stop! And she, from her vantage point, only shake her head, powerless to do anything. She'd given them every opportunity to speak up. Why hadn't they? If Anthony Smith had been a good man, this never would have happened. The young Smith suddenly fell over from a pair of dark hands tugging on his ankles. His pant leg burned and his skin sizzled under the touch. He screamed for help, clawing at the ground while he was pulled ever closer to the grave monument. It took a long time for the fire to engulf him and separate him from his body. In the time it took for him to suffer his fate, three more smiths met theirs. The screams were too much. Lamina had to cover her ears. There was nothing she could do to stop the slaughter as one after the other the family members succumbed to their sin of silence. When the cries of torment finally stopped, the monument melted over the burial plot, coating it like molten lava and locking it in place like the door to a cage. All that was left of Williamina's elegant craftsmanship was the garnet now half-encased in igneous rock. What exactly Anthony Smith had done, what the family was covering up, she'd never know. And as a result, she'd never be entirely sure whether he'd done anything at all. There would always be a doubt in the back of her mind that maybe, just maybe, she'd made a grave mistake.
We were told to never acknowledge a former president while on Air Force One by Sugar Soda. I used to work for a professional cleaning company that was awarded a lot of government contracts. I've been into places that most people can only dream of. My happiest moment working there was the first time I walked into the Oval Office. I remember standing there in awe and, and thinking of all the important events that had happened in this room throughout history. Another one of our contracts was Air Force One, which is the President's personal aircraft. We got a call early one Monday morning to tell us that we needed to do a thorough clean as there had been a party on board and things had gotten a bit messy. I gazed in wonder as we approached this giant aircraft as this would be my first time being on a plane. All the other people with me had been working for the company a lot longer than I had. A number of security officers marched up and began issuing us orders on what we should be doing. My head shot up as I heard one of the officers instruct us to never acknowledge a former president if I saw one on board. I rolled my eyes, thinking that he was joking, but his face looked deathly serious. I was about to ask some questions, but we were ushered on board. I turned to ask my superior, Alan, about it, but I could tell by his expression that he wasn't in the mood for questions. He began barking out orders to everyone as he paired everyone together. He unsurprisingly paired himself with Gary as the two of them were old drinking buddies. I was teamed up with Linda, who was even newer with the company than I was. We chatted away as we cleaned up the mess from the party. I was talking away when I noticed that Linda had gone silent. I looked up at her and her face had gone white as a sheet as she stared at something over my shoulder. My brain screamed at me to continue working and not look, but curiosity got the better of me and I followed her gaze. My eyes widened as I saw one of the greatest presidents in our history standing there watching us. I could look straight through the gunshot wound in his forehead and out the far side. I flinched away as he opened his mouth into a grin that made every hair on my body stick out. My attention was grabbed by the sound of a camera shutter behind me. I spun around to find Linda holding a phone and taking pictures of the president. Our phones had been confiscated earlier, so she must have stuck another one on board. I was shoved to one side as the president lurched toward Linda, who desperately tried to flee. She tripped over a champagne bottle and fell on our ass. The president reached down and dragged her to her feet. She tried to scream, but his hands tightened around her throat. Her face began changing to a myriad of colors as he slowly throttled her to death. I stood there, frozen in place as Linda turned toward me and seemed to plead with me to help. I instinctively grabbed the champagne bottle and smashed it over his head. His grip didn't even falter, even as pieces of the bottle fell into the hole in his skull. He turned his head toward me and I felt my bladder release as I saw the madness in his eyes. He threw Linda's body across the room and I tried not to scream as I heard the sickening thud as her head smashed into the wall. I began backing away as he turned his attention toward me. I heard voices behind me and I turned and ran toward them. I collided into Alan and we both ended up lying in a heap on the floor. 
I heard laughter above me and looked to see Gary standing there, enjoying our predicament. Gary's laughter caught in his throat as the president came into view. Ellen dragged me to my feet as the president advanced on us. My head spun to the side as a door opened in front of him and two more of my co-workers walked out. I didn't even get a chance to shout a warning before he smashed their skulls together. Their bodies crumpled to the floor as their brains dripped from their now-shattered skulls. Alan grabbed my arm and we fled down the plane, shouting at the others to get out. I glanced over my shoulder to see the president following us at a serene pace. We eventually reached the doors and Alan began pulling on them, but they wouldn't budge. We were all huddling together, watching as the president opened his mouth and began laughing. I covered my ears as the laughter seemed to reverberate within my skull. Alan let out a scream of triumph as he finally got the door open and practically jumped out. I felt an ice-cold hand brush the back of my neck as I hopped out of the door. I turned back to see the president standing at the doorway as he held Gary in a headlock. He grabbed Gary's head and in one fluid moment tore his head off. He then flung it out of the plane and it landed at my feet. He raised his hand and began waving at us before disappearing back inside the airplane. I breathed a sigh of relief as dozens of security officers began converging on us from all directions. <laughs>